John Raines is a filmmaker as well as a student currently working toward his Master's of Theology at Fuller Seminary Northwest here in Seattle. He's also a good friend of mine and my co-host for the new podcast, Reconstruct. The uncut version of this episode spends a lot more time on John's background, how we met, and more. So if you'd like a more full picture, check that out. But the short version is this. John and I met when he was a camera assistant on a music video shoot for my old band Sherwood back in 2009. We stayed in loose touch and reconnected up in the Northwest in 2012, and we played in a band together called Pacific Gold, and throughout the last five years, we found ourselves at endless campfires and birthday parties, late into the night, talking theology over beers, often with friends listening in who could barely get in a word edgewise. Sorry about that, dear friends and spouses of ours. And this eventually led to the idea for our new show, Reconstruct, which is now seven episodes in. And here is another one of those seemingly more frequent caveats about this being a somewhat religious episode, but it's also about the significant similarity between the mission of the two shows. Anyway, that's enough for me as an intro. Here's the conversation. This episode is really so that you guys can get to know John a little bit. He and I actually started working on Reconstruct before I even had the idea for Depolarize. Yeah. It's been going on in our minds for about a year now. So I just wanted to have John on. Also, it's been interesting now to release Reconstruct, some of which was recorded before the beginning of Depolarize or around the beginning of Depolarize. Yeah. And the two shows are not as different as one might assume two shows would be. Yeah. There's quite a bit of overlap. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about John's background. We're going to talk about working together. And we'll just see where the conversation goes. It'll be politics and religion. The two things you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. Right. Okay. So it's September or October of 2016. And I come to you and I say, hey, you know, I know we're working on Reconstruct. We had started recording some content for that. And we had been kind of, we spent a lot of time kind of thinking about what we wanted it to be. And yeah, remember together. we had written so many docs about trying to figure yeah. out like what would our whole narrative be and even like the, the marketing schematic and who's our audience and yeah. how are we going to communicate it. We just realized if we really wanted it to be as good as it could be, there were so many knots to untie at the forefront. And so we did spend like months. <laughs> yeah, just like it was a long time. Intermittently meeting to like figure that out. As opposed to this show where I came up to you and I was like, hey, I have an idea for a political podcast, but the election is in six weeks. Yes. And I'd like to get out like six or seven episodes before that. election day. What did you think when I, when I came to you? Like, was there any like faint betrayal? Like, dude, we're already working on a podcast. What is this other one you want to do? Or did you feel like no conflict? It'll be great for him. He obviously needs to get this out of his system. What did you think about it? I thought absolutely no conflict. Okay. That's I nice. thought it was obviously a passion of yours that should get out. And he had yeah. something of benefit both to say and to do. So I was happy about it. I think even remember when you were telling me, I was like, man, if you need like help setting up the website or doing the art, like let me know. And by the time I had said that, you already had your friend. I don't know who it was who did the art for it. The estimable Ryan James. Yes, exactly. Yes. And so, yeah, I was all down to support it. But also, I must mention that I was only under the presumption that you were going to make six episodes total. Because you said, I'm going to start a podcast so I can do an episode every week until the election, which I think I remember was only six or eight weeks away. So I thought, six or eight total, no oh, big deal. Why funny. would I like restrict him? Yeah. And now you're at like episode 37 or 38. Yeah, right? this will be 38, I think. 
the danger so if you of told taking me, like, people hey, literally. I'm going to be yeah. doing this every week, no matter what, like a full parallel Whoops. podcast. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I would have reacted differently, but I, I hope I would have been such that I would have been equally supportive. Well, and, and it's really become clear as we've talked about it and as Depolarize has gone on and as we've continued working on Reconstruct and as we started recording more interviews, it became clear to both of us, I think, pretty quickly that they're not that different from each other. In fact, they are serving a kind of a similar purpose just in two different fields. Yes. In the world of politics and psychology, I'm trying to sort of mine this middle ground, talk to people about if that might be worth looking more seriously at as opposed to just defaulting to one side or the other on any given issue. And also creating an environment where people are asked to and feel comfortable criticizing their own party and the other party every yes. week. And that's not that different than what we are trying to do with Reconstruct in the world of theology. How would you characterize sort of the depolarizing aspect of Reconstruct? Well, I do think depolarize and Reconstruct, they're different in certain ways and they're similar. But they're different in that depolarize is predominantly conciliatory, whereas Reconstruct is predominantly constructive. Okay. So yeah. depolarize, if I understand your mission correctly, or if I could put it into my own words, it would be to take a factionalized social duality yep. and bring them together by building a bridge of common ground. Correct. Right? Yeah. And so you're definitely trying to reconcile those who are divided. Whereas with Reconstruct, we're trying to go to the landscape in which there once were structures of belief and trust and confidence in people of faith and theological positions and traditions. There was something that was already right. whole. And what we see right. at that landscape now is a pile of rubble. And right. what we want to do is enter that landscape, tell people that our own house of cards, which were our inherited theologies, have been broken to pieces just like they are now experiencing. Right. And we say, let's together pick up the rubble and build something new. So it's sort of like building yeah. bridges, but it's a little bit different. But you're right that along with that constructive approach comes a necessary consideration of all possible trajectories or paths to which you could construct. And of course, the fact that you and I, so one of the biggest things that we focus on, that we harp on, and that we thought was important from the beginning is that you and I do not agree theologically. Yes. Right. And so that's more the part, I, you're definitely right, that it is more, the main task is a constructive task, not a conciliatory task. But also, I think, I would say the main thing so far in people's comments back to us that they take away is they note the fact that you and I disagree right. and they like that we can debate civilly and remain yes. friends and present at least two separate options to a listener or anyone else in their life, which then I think also assumes there are more than just our two options. If we can talk yes. and disagree, then surely other people, we could get an Anabaptist in here, we could get a Southern Baptist in here, we could get whatever, right? you know, an Eastern Orthodox, and we could all do this in theory. And so that's a bit of a depolarizing thing because exactly. people take their theologies very seriously, it oh, goes without saying. Yeah, easily as strong as they do their political convictions. Yeah, and maybe intuitions. stronger, yeah. And along those lines, you're right, it must have a depolarizing inertia because- we should be able to go along with a reformed individual that's deconstructed and reconstructs to a progressive stance. 
And we should likewise be able to go to a Baptist that has deconstructed their inherited faith and reconstructed to a Lutheran stance or something. And those right. are completely different. If we had already like a priori determined here are the prerequisites for deconstruction. And more importantly, here's the agenda we will drive home for reconstruction. And reconstruction looks like not just the path towards an end, but a description of the end itself. And we called it one theological stance. It'd be much different. We're not necessarily saying that. The world of ideas is full of all kinds of options from left to right. And in politics, Most issues fall into one of two main camps, make this thing legal or make this thing illegal, or government pay for this, government don't pay for this. But theology is not that way. There isn't that built-in binary. It's more like an open world video game. It's an open territory. And so there isn't the same kind of polarization as there is in politics, but there definitely is polarization within the theological world. So I asked John, what he saw as the two biggest areas of polarization within the Christian talking about God community. I must be able to speak to my own tradition and experience, right? Which is American Christianity and predominantly Protestant. But definitely in American Christianity, too many adherents to theology have been known for burning bridges between one another rather than building them. I, in fact, remember speaking with one of my friends, a pastor in Seattle, about Reconstruct, and I was telling him about our three main values, right? Serious theology, critical charity, meaningful unity. But as I explained more and more, he started getting interested in an aspect that I didn't even think was exactly primary. Hmm. But he thought, whoa, 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 whoa. So you and your host disagree this much? Wait, you interviewed this guy? Then you interviewed this guy? He thought it was crazy that we would be diametrically opposed on a surface level, not only between one another, but between who we would invite for every episode to explore any topic. Right. And he saw very quickly that we were trying to hold that diametric opposition in a sense of unity. We wanted to build a bridge where bridges were non-existent not existent and had built. been burned, yeah. right? right? And he thought, as a pastor working at the local level, he's like, man, you have no idea how important that will be. Because he chalked up his work day in and day out throughout the week to helping his flock attend toward unity. That was like one of his main projects. But why did he so, Why did he feel, if you can speak for him, why did he feel stunted in that move? Like, I don't think anybody would argue that the American Christian church is united. I don't think anybody's right. making that argument. I think it's pretty clear that it's not. But do you have an idea as to what stands in the way of that I do. I don't know what he would say, because he was just excited about the fact that we were trying to build bridges. And he's like, if any force in Christian theology or Christian faith traditions that's trying to build bridges, I'm in support of it. That is just what we need right now. That's cool. And I think we do need that because Christian adherents and theological communities are separated because of at least two main reasons. One is that too many Christians confuse social unity with ideological agreement. So what I mean is that they chalk up being unified as a body, maybe even as being the children of God, to mutual assent to a list of propositions. Yeah, and that's probably much worse in the Protestant world than Catholic or Orthodox. Yes, and that's what I meant at the outset, yeah. that I can only speak to my own experience, I guess. But actually, right? if you think about it, that's that's just like people's party affiliation. So for exactly. instance, in 2010, is it? 
Patty Murray, our Washington state senator, mm-hmm. and Paul Ryan. They got lunch together and they got dinners together and they had each other over for the holidays and they banged out a budget deal hmm. that they compromised on. Yeah. And actually for Congress to work well, you need senators and Congress people to fraternize with each other, to be friendly, to yeah. be socially unified, to eat dinner at the same places, to hmm. celebrate holidays at the same parks or whatever. And then as they get to know each other, oh, yes. it's much more easy for them to identify the most important things and, and reach an agreement and actually get the practical work of governance done. So it sounds like you see it very similar within the church. Yes. We, I really enjoy how that maps on to the political sphere Yeah, because it, it's just too easy for, I mean, gosh, in the Protestant Christian community, I mean, how much factionalizing denominationalism can we take? There are there are like so 10, many. Are there 10,000 American Protestant denominations or is it less than that? It's something like that. It's something insane. Yeah. It, but it's an, a near unbelievable, extraordinary number. And those denominational factors are breaking forth because of this confusion. Because they can't just get to the point that we have a, a social unity that's grounded in something more than our collective assent to illicit propositions. What I mean by ideological agreement. Yeah. That must be right. Because it's at least what I think and you think, a theological error that cognitive content constitutes your faith. But really okay, what we're talking let, about. We'll just say that again in, in straight language in case yes, people I were really distracted by a, so much alliteration. A lot of C. Cognitive <laughs> content constitutes faith. Constitutes faith. CCCF. Meaning you're just saying that we both agree yes. that one's faith is not primarily defined by the beliefs, the propositions that one believes. Yes. Right. Yes. Those definitely play an extremely important yeah, they part. And they're extremely important for community coherence and for even self-knowledge and descriptability of your experience with God. Yeah. However, the real thing that ought to join us together is the faith we have mutually in God through Christ, which is much more within the realm of being part of a family than being part of an ideological community. We're kind of getting toward identity here, yeah. or maybe we're standing right on it. And what you're saying is that in theory, the Christian church or the, the members of the Christian church should see that their identity as loved or adopted members of God's family or however you want to call it should completely take precedence over their sort of inherited social norms. Like I go to a suburban Chinese charismatic church sure. where everybody is Chinese first through third generation or I go to a urban hipster Presbyterian church where everybody is urban and white and hipster and whatever. So there should be this thing that goes deeper. And that's, that of course is very similar to politics. A lot of our polarization comes from identity clashes or the way that our minds want to both accept information that corresponds to our already existing worldview and then project a version of ourselves to our peers to our tribe that lets them know that we're in the tribe. Yes. Signaling and so on. Where do you see that stuff happening within the faith community? Well, you are definitely right in that it comes down to identity in that polarization too often happens at that root level. Yeah. Right. Where unconsciously basically. Yes. And I actually wonder what you have to say about this because 
I know you have ideas of how the church can be a special resource from yeah. which people can draw to depolarize, right? Yeah. But at least in the, the Christian philosophical tradition at large, the resource from which Christians can draw to depolarize is their unification in God's family by the work of God and not by themselves. They must find themselves right. eradicated of factionalized difference in unity as a member brother or sister in the family of God. In other and it words, doesn't you're mean saying, to that point that it, difference must be separatist. Difference must basically turn into diversity. Right? Because for a Christian, for a Christian with traditional Christian beliefs, it is by grace we are saved, not through works that no one should boast, right? By grace through faith. And so right. whether or not you are a Calvinist or an Arminian on how you think the mechanics of that play out, sure. any Christian will believe that a universe of untold trillions of stars was created by God and that God reaches out to us in love and we respond to him through some mechanism. And right. that should provide enough grounding for something to be more so than like I vote Democrat. Yes. And one of the reasons why this is so important is that another reason I find the modern Western American church to be so divided and polarized is because of a threefold crisis. I once read <laughs> threefold. All right, John. Yeah, threefold crisis. As I said, this is how John always talks that I thinks. once came across when reading a book by theologian Kevin Van Hooser, and he was giving providing a historical backdrop to the fractured denominationalism of Christianity, so he could share a thesis that he had for future unification. But the crisis is made up of an interpretive crisis a legitimation crisis and a community crisis. Okay. Interpretation. So the, the interpretive crisis yeah. is that meaning for a Christian rooted in the Bible or theological rumination seems to differ from individual, from an individual to individual or else from community to community. Right. But it's very hard to find unification on the second. Yeah. We just, just insofar as you have a sacred text. Yes. And, the way you interpret that gives you the answers to the most fundamental questions of existence. Right. And so if you interpret that text differently to answer the most fundamental questions of existence differently, it's going to be difficult to feel unified. Right. Right. So you have, you have a crisis of factions emerging. Then you have a legitimation crisis, which is a crisis sort of, of, of authority. Hmm. And that's where, at least in Protestant Christianity especially, a reliable criterion for truth is very difficult to find. Is it reason? Is it tradition? Is it scripture? And if it is scripture, scripture how conceived? Yeah, how is it? mostly a human right. document, mostly a divine document, some unique mixture of the two. But then how does revelation and inspiration play into that? Then once you admit revelation and inspiration, how do you understand it rightly? And that goes back to the interpretive crisis. Then finally, this all hits into the final level of community crisis. And this is where we really see it emerge. And the community crisis is that too many Christian and theological communities are defined more by that to which they're opposed than the positive values for which they stand. So they're more aptly described by their differentiated values than their unifying values. Right. Does it make sense? It does make sense because, for instance, last week, Ravi Iyer, our guest, was saying that, you know, newsrooms who are supported by advertising— know 
that negative mm. headlines are three times more likely to get clicked and read and shared wow. than positive headlines. And so they have a profit motive, but that profit motive is based in human psychology. And so denominations, though not strictly speaking businesses, I mean, there's a business element, they're mostly not for-profit enterprises, but their messages are still received by human beings mm. who have the same base intuitions that human beings who read news articles have. Yes. So there is a, there is a sense in which humans, for whatever reason, have developed in such a way that we respond more strongly in making groups to negative content about another group as opposed to positive content about another group or maybe even our own group. Wow, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that definitely rides nicely along Jonathan Haidt's thesis. Well, and think about that, like even... More time expounding. Think about how crazy that is. So if it's three times more likely, okay, that means a 75-25 split in terms of overall clicks or shares or something between positive articles and negative articles. 50% of the nation at any given point supports one of the sides of those articles. Yeah. So even for the side who likes the Republicans or likes the Democrats, they're like roughly a 50-50 split on positive and negative articles if you assume that the opposing side would only share the negative articles or whatever. You know, I'm unlikely to click on a link that talks about how great Trump is doing. Yes. I'm unlikely to click that because I'm unlikely to be convinced by it and I don't want to waste my time. Because I have a firm opinion about it. Yeah. But <laughs> if even half the, you know, whatever, the average GOP voter for the average GOP president is also going to click on the negative one, that says something really strong. Yeah. And it shows how polarization is entrenched deeply. So even if you have a situation within Christianity where there isn't like a political identity that's roughly 50 50 like Republicans and Democrats, you do still have that same negative impulse at a deep level in terms of what people want to consume and what they want to share, how they think of their own group and other groups. So even without the team labels of team left or team right, a lot of Christians still want to create their own labels like everybody does, like team Presbyterian, team Methodist, team total immersion or team sprinkling. John added to this saying that when ideological agreement becomes the determiner of theological or faith identity, it becomes very easy to slip into justifying or validating your identity as being distinct from those whom you oppose, and who, therefore, no longer need be identified as the children of God. I wonder if you know about this. Richard Swinburne, the eminent Christian philosopher, was the keynote speaker at the Society of Christian Philosophers, I think, last year. And the issue of the conference, so as I understand, was sexual morality. Okay. And in his talk, he was critical of homosexual acts. And he supported a traditional theological view. And he gave a very clear and a very gracious and polite, but carefully argued presentation in which he demonstrated, so he thought to the best of his abilities, that homosexual acts were disordered. Okay. That's what he was trying to argue for. However, instead of being accepted as a philosopher who can speak forth his views and be argued with, he was immediately repudiated by philosophers and theologians left and right everywhere to an extremely great extent, all the way to the extent 
that the president of the Society of Christian Philosophers publicly apologized for Swinburne and all of his words. And he disassociated himself and the society from every word spoken by Swinburne and apologized for any hurt he may have caused, right? And the problem that you found here was that, my lord, a society of philosophers ought to be like at least the final bastion in which the free exchange of ideas ought to be cultivated, right? And they weren't. Yeah. Instead, this guy who even held a traditional theological view, right. I mean, whether or not you think it's right, whether or not you disagree, he should not be automatically ridiculed. Right. Instead, I mean, he was dismissed as a bigot, as though his arguments ought to be ridiculed rather than rationally engaged. Yeah, uh, Aristotle had a term for that. It was called ad hominem. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, he was completely submerged in attacks either from ad hominem or appeal to emotion. When really, yeah. especially at a society for philosophers, he should have been engaged at the rational level to think, for his opponents to think, are your arguments valid? Do your evidences chalk up to support yourself? Yeah. And they should have argued back at him rather yeah, than just Yeah, they should have argued against him. some of his, the premises of his argument. Yes. Yeah. And so it's very difficult. It's an individuals that tried to figure out what happened at this conference, what happened with this entire issue. It's very difficult because at one point you want to sympathize with those that totally disagree with Swinburne and think what he's saying is madness, right? And they think what he's causing is extreme hurt. But it's difficult because you could even have Peter Singer another philosopher who has very controversial views about abortion, Mm -hmm. thinking that you could get rid of children up to the age of two because they do not reach the cognitive requirements of humanity. Right, right. It's very, very difficult. But if Peter Singer argued that at a conference, someone would just argue back at him. He doesn't need to just be kicked out and ridiculed. Right. You could probably beat those with good argumentation. That's what about the free exchange of ideas is all about. Yeah. Right? And depolarization, I think, can only exist if you can entertain that for a minute and not just say radically that every case is closed so long as the case threatens your decided position. Yeah. And so... Another side of people evaluating this issue is like, okay, maybe these people aren't just being sympathetic about hurt. Maybe this is an intentional, poised, liberal, progressive tactic to make anything other than liberal, progressive values a generator of shame. Yeah. So that you're ridiculed if you agree with anything contrary to progressive values. So it was very heated. It was very difficult. But I remember that as a very poignant example of extreme polarization in the theological community that, and I'm sure you know more about this than I do, maps on readily to the political sphere as well. Yeah, that maps on pretty well to what's going on, I would say, on college, some college campuses these days with sure. you know not allowing certain people to speak. I mean, you know, Ann Coulter, for instance, at Berkeley, I mean, Ann Coulter's ideas are so bad that <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to, like, deny her the ability to speak, like, you know, there are a certain number of people who will be swayed by them because they are ready to be swayed by them. But she's just like a terrible, terrible arguer. Like her arguments just suck. And I would rather just like let her speak and then have someone come up afterward and just rebut her. Yeah. And then anybody, let her entertain her arguments. We can argue back. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we can persuade people instead of just immediately appealing to knee jerk reactions especially emotional reactions, as though our ideological rumination ought to be formed and informed merely by emotion. Right. I mean, what have we come to when that's our tactic? So I was at the uh, American Academy of Religion, AAR, 
the big yeah. meetup or whatever, the big sort of meeting conference in uh, November. And Peter Enns, who is one of our guests on Reconstruct, was right. giving kind of like a early keynote to just to like other, mostly other professors and stuff. It was kind of a kickoff event. And he told the story of his former colleagues at Westminster Seminary, where he was relieved of his post because of his, you know, whatever heterodox views. Yeah, specifically for his book. Um, Inspiration Incarnation. Exactly. Yeah. And he quoted one of his former colleagues, Enns is kind of defending himself, and he's like, look, guys, I understand the creeds, I understand the Westminster Confession, which is a popular confession in the tradition of John Calvin, yeah. one of the early Protestant thinkers. He's like, I get all that, but you know, we've learned a lot through archaeology in the last 150 years, and I don't think that we should ignore that evidence. And one of his coworkers said, it is our job to shield students from that information. Hmm. So that's an example of the very same thing, sort of. And I think that a lot of our listeners, and, and I would say this maps pretty well into my experience, have experienced that kind of shielding from the yes. theological right. It's not safe to just give people the data and let them look at it. Maybe because agendas creep in, or I'm not sure exactly how they would describe this. I, yeah. I've never really agreed with that, even when I was younger and more conservative, theologically conservative. But something like, yeah, we you have to be shielded from that because that's the enemy. That's basically, right. basically that is Satan getting in false teaching amongst real teaching to deceive people. And once you say that another <laughs> theologian is acting on the devil's authority that is about as polarized as you can get. And I come from a tradition that is traditionally polarized in that way. Yeah. Well, so why? So, well, it's difficult. I mean, I remember when we started reconstruct, what was it like one weekend, maybe when you were accused of being a heretic, remember that? Oh, it was the second day because okay, second day. the podcast came out the day before my wife's birthday. Yes. And then the next day was her birthday and we were out to lunch and I read this comment on our Facebook post about how I'd be better if I had a rock tied around my neck and I was thrown into the Pacific Northwest Ocean. Yes. I don't think he realizes it's actually a sound. Yes. Around Seattle, it's not the ocean. It's a and sound. it was an appropriation of Jesus' words. Yes, it was an appropriation of Jesus' words. Strangely uh, applied. So those of you who haven't listened yet, like John, broadly speaking, has a more traditional conservative theological view, and I have a more progressive theological view. And so this guy thought that I was a false teacher, and right. it's just better for me to be dead than to be doing the podcast and giving any sort of oxygen to non-traditional views. Yes. Is basically and and he, he comes from the tradition from which I come. Reformed tradition, yeah. And reformed theologians and those of the Calvinistic persuasion are almost never associated and grouped in with generosity and charity and openness. Yeah, right. Never, never. Yeah. Which is a shame because I've obviously been convinced by the tradition's insights yeah. and find it radically equipping for charity, generosity, and openness. Mm. So I look at the history and think, what in the world was everyone thinking? Well, do you have any <laughs> ideas? Why in your why is your well, particular tradition so known I, for I that? wanted to speak to his propensity. It was very strange mm. that he, he had defined the way he would articulate his theological position and somewhere rooted deeply into his identity. He is the commenter. 
yeah, yeah, called you out as a heretic because he just thought his theological rumination should have constructed his identity such that anybody in opposition was just in some other further opposed binary that was justified as being apart from the work of the gospel and the work of God, right? And that's where when Peter ends is trying to speak forth his convictions and bring forth what 150 years of archaeological evidence to bear yeah. upon how we think through our theology right, yeah. and one of his colleagues from this same tradition Westminster Seminary a yep. reformed uh, institution is saying we need to protect our students from that because it's dangerous because it belongs to the other side yep and they have a polarizing basically you have to think it's demonic or something I mean right if it's not even allowed in the doors then it is it is of the enemy yeah, and when I spoke Which, earlier though, about- Which, though, is the same about Swinburne's argument for homosexual desires being disordered loves or whatever is, mm-hmm. it's of the enemy. But the, the left is then calling Swinburne a demonic or sort of like, is basically demonizing him. Yeah. It's, so and it's the same what's, what's good about Swinburne is that he wasn't trying to say that any homosexual intention or relationship or impulse at all is just like at root terribly sinful. Mm-hmm. Instead, he saw it as a, a disordering as in like a like a brokenness, yeah. a posteriori, as in like after the fact, right? Okay. So he saw it as like a broken condition that we ought acknowledge as being brokenness, hmm. not as rightly ordered. And so, do you see what I mean? He I at least wasn't mean. nearly I'm not going to get. It. I'm not going to wade into that. We, I'm sure we'll yeah. get into it on Reconstructed at some point. But I am speaking to my own tradition when I yeah. say, I see polarization generally whenever Christians, whether they're just simply layman adherents or theologians, confuse social unity with ideological agreement. And one of the greatest examples of this is the evangelical church and the evangelical yeah. right. But it's very difficult because you think, think about the theological grounding from which we all ought to be drawing. Because I don't, not having a sociological or political background, don't know exactly how to map this sufficiently on to the political sphere. But it's very interesting when I go to, let's say, the works of Paul, he actually says very, very many incredible things about political engagement, even though people from my tradition think that Paul and Jesus had very little to say about politics at all. Not true. And usually advocated a separation between church and state and so on and so forth. But in the first chapter of Philippians, Paul is speaking and his entire letter is actually very politically charged. He's speaking to Christians at Philippi and Philippi is a Roman veteran colony. It's a colony instituted by the Roman Empire just for veterans. Hmm. So they can go and reside there after... I didn't know that. ...after they fought in war. And so the entire population is made up of individuals that are severely and extremely devoted to the political ideology of Rome. They literally fought for it. Yes, it's extremely political. And Paul has an extreme counter agenda to undercut the Roman political value system. So at the end of chapter one, he uses this very special Greek word that he uses like twice or maybe three times in any of his writings. And he says, politouethse is how he starts off the paragraph. And you can already hear how it sounds like politics, politouethse. It's a second person plural imperative. And it's a verb that means live as a citizen. Like I command you to live as a citizen. Mm. And it's a verb for which we have no cognate in English. We only have a noun, just the word citizen. But we don't have any verb that means 
to citizen. To citizen. We have no verb, but he did. And in every translation you will find, the political aspect is eradicated. It only reads, and it's Philippians 118, I believe, only live, just live worthily as a citizen in the gospel of Christ. Maybe live as a citizen. Yeah. But it doesn't bring in the whole political aspect. Yeah. So he's trying to say- Civil life, yeah. Yeah, he's trying to say the entire political inertia ought to be defined according to certain parameters, which he immediately describes. And he says you ought to be of one spirit and you ought to be of one soul or mind. And he uses the word basuke, where where we get like psychology from. And it means soul or mind, like one's deepest essence. Very, very important. But he says one spirit, one soul. And his agenda is to destroy depolarization. And he wants to do two things no, in Philippians. destroy polarization. Sorry. He wants to destroy <laughs> polarization. That's the first thing he wants to do. The second thing he wants to do is destroy pride. And he sees those two as very jointly united. Oh, gosh. I could not agree more that right. those two are united. Yeah. And he begins chapter two saying, please make my love complete by yet again being of one mind, being of one love, united again in spirit. He just repeats the same thing he did a few verses before. And then he puts forth the Christ hymn. As an example, and he says, have this mind among, among you, which was the mind of Christ who emptied himself and humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. Yeah. And obviously he's saying Christ's manner of living was one of such unity that he would give his life if the children of God might be founded in light of his sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Incredible humility, right? And so he goes on and there's many other examples. He touches upon it just every few verses, fighting pride and fighting polarization. And then you look at the evangelical right, and it's a conservative tradition from which I arise. And you see them- Myself as well, which should be noted. Yep. Yeah. And you see them, one, defining their denominationism. Yeah. Denominational (laughs) differences through opposition. And two, they vote for a president who might as well be the embodiment of pride. Yeah. Right. And maybe I don't have the harshest words, but Paul definitely has the harshest words to look at the right and see you are against everything that you ought to be standing for. You are engendering and perpetuating polarization and you are building a foundation in which pride ought to be or could be cultivated. As I do with all my guests, I asked John my final question. In the world of theology, what do the people, generally speaking, on the left get wrong about the people on the right? And what do the people who, generally speaking, are more conservative theologically, what do they get wrong about their liberal counterparts? I think I can best begin to explain this if I just really quick explain Jonathan Haidt's theory of moral foundations. Well, we just had it last week with Ravi. Okay. So if anyone listened to that, but you, you give your own I'll just little, be really yeah. brief. Jonathan Haidt, moral psychologist, has developed a theory of moral foundations by which the causes of opposition and distinction in political and religious parties could be rightly identified. Yeah. Mo- right? It gives the, so far, it's the best explanation I've read for how these differences arise. Yes. He has three really great controlling metaphors. One is the rider and the elephant, and the rider is like our rational mind, and the elephant is like our emotional intuitions and assumptions. Yep. And so 
the rider on the elephant seems to be the one directing the path forward. But really, it's the six-ton elephant that can move at every whim to go whatever direction it wants. And when that is acknowledged, you see the rider as basically being useless. And, Haidt argues, that's the way we make so many decisions. They seem on the surface to be rational, but really, they're coming from a more deeply seated bedrock of moral intuition. Yep. So that's the first metaphor. Which is something that we actually get to a lot when we argue on Reconstruct. Yes, absolutely. We, we get need back to, to them, moral that's why intuitions. Yeah. And right. then the, the second metaphor is we are 90% chimpanzee, 10% bee. And what he's trying to say is that 90% of the human constitution is competitive and it wants to beat out the other that it might progress in yeah. the defeat of the other. Chimpanzees do not like team up to build structures for instance exactly yeah but bees do the opposite yeah they are group focused and they emphasize community to get tasks at hand done and when humans can get together and draw from their 10 percent bee propensity they can do wondrous things yeah like in society and communities build the pyramids or whatever yeah right so you need to notice that as well and then the, the last one is a metaphor in which moral intuitions are mapped on to the tongue-like taste buds. Like taste buds, yes. And here, I'm beginning my answer, the left and the right theologically map on pretty nicely to the left and right politically as well, right? So liberal and conservative. And the liberal theological position is largely characterized by the moral foundations of care, harm, liberty, oppression, fairness, and cheating. Those are very highly emphasized values. And the conservative side is characterized by a commitment to loyalty, betrayal, authority, subversion, and sanctity and degradation. Those are the main emphases. Now, to get specific, and this does not characterize liberal theology and conservative theology at large at all, but it's one thing that they get wrong about one another that if they didn't, I think they'd understand each other more. Yeah. The left, in its theological rumination tends to emphasize the role of humanity in the dynamic of reality's narrative in which obviously God plays a part and we as members of humanity play an integral part. And the operative commitment here, or rather the operative posture would be sympathy of looking upon humanity and seeing it being a a pitiful mixture of sinner and sufferer a broken system of injustice into which God's redemption and restoration could enter. And so they have sympathy for the human condition and it's emphasized. God is not out of the picture at all, but humanity is emphasized on the conservative side. The emphasis switches to God and humanity is put on the back burner and God is venerated properly as the creator of the world and the one for whom we were created so that our teleology or our purpose in what we're life, made for, the yeah. end for which, yes, we were created, is to love this God and be in communion with him forever. And that is the emphasis. Now, if you realize that is the commitment of the left and the commitment of the right, then I don't think they would have such viscerally oppositional dialogue as they do now. Yeah. Because then, if the right understood that the left cares about humanity, then they would see what the right would see what they perceive to be on the left as capitulating to culture and twisting the gospel, not as blind heresy, 
but as a genuine sympathetic commitment to a humanity that is broken and that they would see, the right would see that the left wants to care for a humanity for which God dramatically cares. And that is something the right can respect. Definitely. Similarly, the left would see on the right that their inclination towards sophisticated and accurate belief systems and to upholding the unique decisiveness of Jesus Christ and his work is not the work of tired, outdated dogmaticians or sickos or something, but rather it's the work of a people and a group that care deeply about being loyal to God and of honoring him and of knowing their proper place as a created element in the universe created to love this God. And they don't want to leave humanity out of the picture. And if the left saw that of the right, I think they could respect that. And if both the left and the right noticed that about one another, we would have much healthier dialogue. That's great. And uh, one last little plug wherein I relate the two podcasts. I was reading, since we're both narcissists about our new show, (laughs) I was reading iTunes reviews. Yeah. We've only gotten one negative one and the guy called me a wolf and you a lamb. Oh, he called me a sweet lamb. A sweet lamb. <laughs> and I am a wolf, of course. I'm a I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing, according to this reviewer. But most of the reviews are good. And the one that stuck out to me though that was interesting is this person described us as being center left and center right theologically. Oh yeah. M- myself and you respectively. And I have always thought of myself as theologically pretty far left, but I, I was thinking about it and I, I think that's right because theologically I affirm sort of like absolute truth about God as revealed in Jesus. And yeah. I think the far left would not affirm that. I mean, I, I affirm sure. physical resurrection, stuff like that. Um, I'm really interested in how people can be Christians without believing in the resurrection, but I do believe it. So right. I'm not far left. And, yeah, you're and the right would not. uphold inerrancy as like, yeah. what, like the boundary line of Christian commitment and identity yeah. when I would not see it you that way not, at yeah. all. Right. And so that's interesting. So, you know, for those of you considering whether or not to listen, um, that's, I think, a helpful thing that to describe the show is, is we are, we definitely disagree. Yeah. We're not really super close in the center, but broadly speaking, I'm center left, you're center right. And there are people to the left and the right of each of us. And there's people in between on any number of issues, but that's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. And I think we both have people to whom we look up that model that really well. Yeah. Like anti right, for example, has now found himself in such a bizarre predicament that he's just explicit about it. Now he realizes he just has views about which the left could find criticisms all day long. Yeah. And he has other views about which the right can find criticisms all day long. And he doesn't comfortably fit into either, but he's happy about that. He might even be proud about it. Yeah. And we're very thankful for his work. In fact, in as much as we disagree, we at least agree when it comes to the domain of rights work. We're going to at least like, he can be a conversation partner for us. Oh, in our yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For each other. Yep. And the best way I would describe it for our listeners is that I find home on the right, but I'm willing every day to wake up and explore the territory of the left. And you are grounded at home in the left, and you are excited each day to wake up and explore the territory of the right. Yep. That's the best that's way I can That's pretty good. Play. Yeah, that's accurate. You can find John on Twitter at John C. Rains, J-O-H-N-C-R-A-I-N-E-S. 
Of course, you can listen to all the episodes of Reconstruct by searching for it, one word, on your podcast app or on iTunes, or by going to reconstructpodcast.com. Something insignificant, but kind of a fun detail, is that all the music used in this episode is actually the stuff we use for Reconstruct. Much of it I wrote specifically for that show. You can always hire me for any commercial composition work at dancoke.net. Depolarize is co-produced by Chad Michael Snavely and myself. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Koch, K-O-C-H. You can join the Depolarize podcast discussion group on Facebook and keep the conversation going. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at patreon.com slash depolarize or by clicking become a patron at depolarizepodcast.com. 